Welcome to The Lead, the new Lines Magazine podcast. I'm Joshua Martin, and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. In The Lead this week, we take a deep dive into the deep state. The term itself is more recent, but it's an old idea. The fear that the government you see is not the real government, but merely the puppet of the shadowy network which is really pulling the strings. In America, such ideas have been percolating since the 1950s, especially among hard-right groups like the John Birch Society. But it was only during the Trump administration that the concept really went mainstream. Trump routinely blamed his failures on the deep state, and continues to accuse opponents of being part of it. The conspiracy theory proved very compelling to many of his supporters. In its most extreme form, the QAnon conspiracy cult used the term to refer to an international cabal of child-murdering Satan worshippers, a cabal which they claimed included prominent politicians and celebrities. QAnon believers have been implicated in multiple domestic terror incidents and were prominent participants in the January 6th Capitol attacks. But the term deep state is not an American one. It originates in Turkey, where it refers to something very real. For decades, a parallel power structure within the Turkish state has operated without the consent of the official government. I'm joined today by Joseph Burton, a former American diplomat who was posted at the US Embassy in Ankara during the Trump presidency. He wrote an essay for New Lines comparing the American conspiracy of the deep state to the Turkish reality, which has proved increasingly relevant over subsequent months, especially following the FBI raid of Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort. Joseph, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's uh, great to be here. So I wanted to start by, you know, I've talked about the deep state in the introduction there, but just if you could talk a little bit more about the deep state in Turkey and uh, how it's operated historically. Yeah, I mean, that's um, that's a really good question. And it's sort of like an interesting topic because it has very, very hard confirmed factual elements, but it's also got fuzzy edges. Um, you know, when you're talking about the Turkish Republic and its kind of modern uh, incarnation, it kind of, you know, evolves out of modernizing movements at the end of the Ottoman Empire. And it's one of the only countries I know of where they basically say that their current state intelligence service, the Turkish CIA, MIT, uh, originated as a secret brotherhood among Ottoman army officers, right? So there were these sorts of Turkish nationalist groups in the late 19th century who were operating and forming cliques and cabals to sort of um, deal with what they felt to be the inevitable collapse of the Ottoman Empire. But when you talk about the Turkish deep state, you know, for a lot of people, the point was the um, the 1990s, the Sussurluk car crash. Turkey was a country that had had military coups. It had had a very intense Cold War era struggle between the state and leftist groups. But it was really the moment of this, this car crash, this BMW gets hit by a truck in the Aegean region and driving it are like a Kurdish clan leader, a police general and a far right mafia drug baron and some unnamed young women who flee the scene immediately. And then the trunk is just full of like Deutschmarks and silence of machine guns. And that was sort of the breaking force to the surface of like, wow, something is going on that we don't know about. These guys should not be hanging out together. What, what's up? What is it? And that kind of brings into popular consciousness here and, and kind of coins the term deep state, which is something that kind of gets dragged up um, in the 1990s and early 2000s. You know, when you're talking about the early days of the Justice and Development Party of Erdogan's administration, he kind of pitched himself to liberals in Turkey and also in Europe and, and the United States as sort of like, well, I'm the guy who's, you understand, I have a democratic mandate. 
this deep state, this thing, this undemocratic, out of control state within a state is something that I'm going to bring to heel with democracy. Now, I think we all see how that developed and where that went. But at the time, it was something that people were talking about. You know, I first came to Turkey as an exchange student in 2005. And that's the first time I heard the phrase deep state was in one of these dormitory cafeteria conversations. And so when that was revealed, was that a surprise on the whole to the Turkish public? Or was this always kind of an open secret? Like they always knew that something was going on, but never could confirm it. Well, you know, state parastate forces were there. Everyone knew the the Bozkurtlar, the Grey Wolves, which are the um, kind of you know big fascist street fighting organization, and 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 kind of the the foot soldiers of the Turkish far right were there, and still are, and still very much still are, and and you know that that was always there. But the idea in the 1990s that this wasn't just state repression, a la Chile or Argentina, this wasn't just you know the the cops or maybe the secret cops arresting someone, but that things might be happening that the government itself does not control um, really emerges in the 1990s. You know, and I think that's that's kind of inextricable from from what Turkey was kind of going through as it emerged from the, the, the 1980s, which were really the peak of state repression. There was a lot of mistrust, but also, you know, sort of openings to begin to question and talk about things and also a divergence of the elected Turkish government from the consensus of the security services, right, which is all sort of around the the Kurdish question and um, what was happening in southeastern Turkey at that time. Right. And that's when the, sort of the deep state begins to come to light, right? And I think it's important just to stop a moment and emphasize that you know, this is stuff that's documented, it's proven. Um, and I wondered if you could talk a bit about how we know these things. Right. I mean, so what kind of happens is there is, I think, and it really is in the 1990s, this kind of global moment of some people really kind of going, well, I guess the Cold War's over. We can kind of hash this stuff out. And that happens, you know, um, in you know Turkey in the 1990s, where there's this interesting coinciding of like a level of parliamentary democratization post-military rule with the country's most brutal internal conflict. And then also in, in Western Europe, a kind of moment of, you know, consensus liberal government where there's an idea of like, okay, well, now it's time for all those things that we said were just a measure to contain communism out of expediency to happen. So, you know, you do have, um, you know, investigations in Italy, you know, like the reason everyone calls Operation Gladio, Operation Gladio is because there were investigations in Italy, which revealed that there, there were these NATO, not Italian national intelligence, but NATO um, efforts to create a stay behind network. You know, you look at investigations in Turkey in the 1990s and especially like early 2000s, which revealed the existence of a lot of these organizations. And there was a big scandal around the existence of an organization called JITEM, which was the paramilitary police, the gendarme, gendarmerie's intelligence section, which officially did not exist. Even people within the Turkish paramilitary police did not know that JITEM existed. Right. So it was basically autonomous units within the country's own security services operating without the knowledge of the security services. Right. So this this does happen. States are secret and fractious. And there's a number of times I could mention that there's been reporting stories with, you know, the State Department and the CIA have backed different sides of the same civil war. Right. Yes. 
And that that happens, but you know, theoretically, that all goes through the chain of command and someone knows that they are doing it. It's just that in states that get big enough, it's hard to resolve these contradictions. And I think that, you know, the idea of deep state is that there's not like a contradiction or a mistake or kind of a structural conflict, but that like elements within the state are just doing what they want and without without any kind of going back to the chain of command. They're just doing it. Right. They're intentionally hiding their activities from their superiors, or even consider themselves to have superiors that aren't the official superiors. That aren't the official superiors. And I think that's exactly it. It's it's a question not just about state criminality, but like autonomous state criminality. There's states breaking the law, which they do all the time, right? That's being the state is giving yourself the permission to break the law. But there's also states breaking parts of states breaking away from their own authority and control which i think is is part of this this kind of you know these things that really make a deep state a deep state which is lack of accountability to any kind of leadership and criminality as opposed to states of exception and um and then an idea of of operating kind of deniably and and this can be kind of splitting hairs but i think it's important to when we start talking about like the post 9 11 era and especially QAnon and the, the sort of moment we're in where there are conspiratorial accusations, you know, false flags, when you talk about them in, in the United States now, you think about like Alex Jones, for example, um, you know, the, the conspiratorial TV web host basically saying to the parents of dead children from the Sandy Hook mass shooting that that was a false flag, your kids aren't dead, they never existed, they were actors. But like the idea of a false flag is something that that has historically happened. And I think it's important that the more unhinged and irrational these sorts of terms become, the way they kind of break free and start floating around discursively, I think the more we have to point to concrete historic examples of this defined thing. Yes. And I, I don't just mean something that has a lot of loose ends or a lot of things that that feel weird about it, because I myself love, uh, you know, a, a complicated historical event, right? Um, yeah, you can go down a lot of rabbit holes when it gets fishy. This isn't fishy. This is real. It's, it's not fishy. It's real. Yeah. And so I think that things like the fact that in Italy, far right mafia linked groups that were NATO supported did conduct false flag attacks to pursue yeah. a strategy of tension to make sure the Communist Party did not win an election in Italy in the 70s. That's that's real. Journalists, yeah. the Italian parliament, they've looked into it. And I think that the more lurid political discourse becomes, I think the more we have to focus on the, the specificity of those incidents and, and the, the kind of objective reality of them to talk about what they are and not immediately let the breach in normalcy kind of spin out. Right, yes. That's the sort of the difference between conspiracy theory and conspiracy is that when they really are out to get you, it leaves a trail. Right, right, right. And, and I think we are in this moment, though, where it's interesting where there is this kind of like things are kind of breaking loose, they're becoming unmoored. And there's this sort of this sort of terror that everyone's living inside their own universe and their own reality and their own kind of construction. Mm. And there's not a lot of analytical frameworks out there that are that are shared or even systematic. Right? I mean, I think, you know, we were talking a bit before the recording about how you got into following QAnon in Scotland, and just like QAnon Mm. in the United States, there's just completely free form completely um what's the term like syncretic kind of political thoughts where you can put together anything and i'm I'm seeing these quotes of like we need someone to stop the corporations because the corporations are gonna implement communism and they're gonna make america communist 
And I'm just like, this is an amazing set of assumptions and, and vocabulary that can lead someone to a, to a statement like this, right? But there's mm -hmm. this idea that, oh, if only, if only you knew the correct facts, then things would kind of calm down and our social fabric would be healed, right? By some sort of authoritative discursive analysis. And so, you know, you use certain keywords or something and something pops up on, on Twitter, right? You know, you were talking about, you know, being vaccinated or something like that. You get a little COVID-19 reminder and it pops up yeah. and it says, you can look at the information. I don't think anyone who thinks that this is George Soros trying to turn me gay with nano machines is going to click on that and be like, oh, wow, thank you. Of course not. Because I mean, a lot of the people who are promoting these lies know that they're lies. I mean, you talked about Alex Jones earlier. Alex Jones doesn't believe most of what he says, but he knows that it's useful to him. Yeah. The same is true of Donald Trump. I mean, yes. we, we, we've been talking about the deep state as this very real thing um, in Turkey and Italy and wherever else you want to point to. But for someone like Trump, the deep state is useful precisely because it's not specific, because it's yeah. not bounded, because you can point to anyone and say deep state yeah it can be whatever he needs it to be and that's a useful that's a really useful thing to have for someone in power it absolutely is and i think that you know um it, it, it creates this oppositionality where then people start clinging to deep state because they're being described as deep state and it's like so so what if i am i i, I was a friend of mine was like are they are they reappropriating deep state but i knew so many people in the state department or who were like oh yeah we're, i guess we are deep staters and the idea is is oh, God. The, the meaning the, but the meaning shifted right and the meaning shifted between like this very specific historical phenomenon to like any structure of power Right. Or any structure of right. power I don't like is the deep state. You know, Trump saying, oh, well, you're all engaged in a horrific conspiracy against me. You're all deep staters. You're all in league with some sort of, you know, this some sort of satanic force, which I alone am opposing. Right. And it, it sets up this kind of. Yeah, this it really raises the temperature. Right. And it really creates this sort of like exist, this sense of an existential dread. Right. And an, and an existential um felt threat which also if it's undefined and secret then you know if you say no but that doesn't exist it just means that you haven't haven't proven it yet and you know like i i i really don't know how to proceed with this idea considering it, you know with, with talking about this where i think clearly people in like the state department or working for a defense department you know a subcontractor saying i'm in the deep state no you're not but yes, but but also, you know, there there are certain weird things where I think there there clearly has in the past couple of months been some sort of decision or inflection point or shift to basically hit Trump with a lot of stuff that was probably known, right? That you know, uh, hey, the president just walked out with a bunch of nuclear secrets. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know that, that that you you know at the at the point of loss or breach that that has happened and i think that it just wasn't a political reality to act on it and so there i think there are definitely uh in terms of the the federal engage you know the federal investigations um against trump going on right now maybe some behind closed door decision has been made that like now he's really gone too far this time you know we we are raiding mar-a-lago we are hitting him with like messing with actual state secrets um you know, he's also a man who's been under some kind of criminal investigation for most of his adult life. So that's, you know, kind of normal for him. But I, I think we are at a point where this sort of, you know, splicing these hairs might seem very pedantic, but I actually think it's really important in terms of like, well, you know, 
what's happening? How does state power function? How does state power function outside of public scrutiny, but still within a framework of, you know, things, things running effectively of being under some manner of, of control versus institutions just breaking off and kind of doing their own thing. And this is why I think, you know, the thing in the piece that caused me the most heartburn in the thing in the piece is I do kind of hand wave away talking about, you know, has there been a deep state in the United States, which is a very thorny question, I think, especially when you're talking about the 60s and 70s, when you're talking about, you know, some of these unanswered questions about the Kennedy assassination or the death of MLK, or even a lot of foreign policy decisions made about the Cold War of Vietnam. Whatever that being said, there's not this level of like, okay, we've been caught, you know, GTEM was found out about and shut down. It doesn't exist anymore. Right? Right. Um, other forms of parallel source, social organization in Turkey, you know, might and may well do, you know, at, at this point, Erdogan, for example, no longer really says deep state, but he likes to say like the, the, the parallel structure, basically referring to the Gulen movement, you know, why, um, why, why do you sorry to interrupt you there, but why do you suppose that he gave up on deep state? Because for so many of these sort of Trump style populists, uh, of which you could argue that Erdogan is one, it's a really useful thing to use. I mean, Trump has made massive amounts of hay from it. You had Boris Johnson uh, in his resignation speech talking about the deep state sabotaging Brexit. Yeah. So why is Erdogan going, actually, this isn't for me anymore? Well, I, I do think that's a, that's a really good point because, you know, I think what we're really talking about is discourse, right? We're talking about this, the deep state as an idea which politicians deploy to mean something that matters to them. Yeah, and it doesn't I mean think that what it used to mean. Exactly. And I think that the specificity of the deep state being these sort of state connected security in security apparatuses, right? Um, which for Erdogan, he also really himself always meant it to mean the the Kemalist secularist army mm. and intelligence connected elites, which he was going up against as a as an erstwhile democratic populist. And so for him, he he spent decades crafting an image of this kind of arrogant, out of touch, um, anti-democratic elite, which he called the deep state that, you know, and look, the army did not like him. You know, Erdogan did spend time in jail before he, he went into politics. Right. Yeah. Um, and he he really meant it to mean those guys. So it became a positional fight. It became a calc in Turkish society of the deep state had, you know, meaning this kind of, you know, from is, you know, the classic is like the from Izmir, Europhile, ultra secularist, learned German or French, is an army officer, thinks that the people aren't ready to govern themselves. Like it just meant so many things. Then it turned into this decades long positional fight. If you look at the Ergenicon trials, which was a, a putative army uh, coup attempt that was being planned against Erdogan, you know, all mm. this stuff that happened in, in Turkey over a long time that when he was saying, you know, this, this Derin Devleti, and when it also came to be synonymous with sort of his putative democratic openness, right, um, which he was really pitching himself as being into in the early 2000s, you know, it just became so loaded with baggage that he couldn't come turn around and then say, actually, uh, the deep state is this religious brotherhood. That it's also right. that. His, right? his opponents changed. And so he needed to something new. Right, exactly. And and I think that when, you know, Trump is going on about, oh, you know, it's the deep state, or you're doing the deep state, and even people, you know, the thing that kind of proves that his version of the deep state isn't deep, the deep state is when Mike Pompeo, when Trump said, oh, it's the State Department, and Pompeo went, haha, more like deep state department. 
obviously trying to kind of butt, obviously trying to butter up. But I was sitting there watching that teleconference. I was like, dude, you're the secretary of state and you just called yourself a deep state network. Like, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. But I think discursively, it, it is how it could work out. If we're capitulating this to just mean like the administrative mechanisms of the American state, right? If the deep state yeah. just means that, then that's then we're taking that off the table to discuss things which are really terrifying. Because I think, yeah. especially as there's a greater level of executive dysfunction, and obviously I'm most familiar with like American foreign policy, I think you're mm -hmm. starting to see deep state-ish characteristics from organizations like Joint Special Operations Command, right? Or, um, you know, parts, parts of the military. And so if we've taken this term off the table, then that actually is dangerous because then if, if we're talking about, hey, there seem to be a lot of QAnon conspiracists like infiltrating certain key parts of the police and military. Yeah. You know, and they're like, well, I'm, uh, you know, the only reason I'm, uh, you know, not investigating Proud Boys and uh, I'm, I'm going to Trump rallies and like throwing flashbangs at Black Lives Matter protesters um, you know, is to fight the deep state. And it's like, buddy, like you're the deep state at this point. Like, you know, you're, you're the cop, you're, you're, you're the Navy SEAL. Like, you know, that, that's, um, that's where it comes from. And so I think that, you know, what I talked about at the end of the piece was sort of this fear that the elements that are purportedly fighting a deep state. I'm going to interrupt you there because I want to get to that in a bit. But first, I, I wanted to talk a bit about, you know, talking about sort of Erdogan, yeah. stopping this Trump picking it up. I mean, the man who you at least theorize may have brought uh, the deep state to Trump's attention is precisely one of those kinds of people that you're talking about. I mean, it's yeah. General Mike Flynn, who served for 22 days as Trump's uh, national security advisor. But and what a 22 days they were. Um, no, and, and Flynn, is, Flynn is the man in this, where he's such an interesting lens to look at all of this through, because it's it is this kind of American life from like hardcore special forces, cold warrior to weird grifter to, I mean, and I'm, I'm saying weird grifter to talk about his, his flip into being a highly compensated pro-Turkish lobbyist, not even his second incarnation as a weird grifter, um, being a sort of a QAnon guy. And I, I think looking at it, and this is a thing in this conversation where I think looking at things like individual lives and individual trajectories is really valuable. Um, because right. Mike, the story of Mike Flynn is, is also kind of very revealing about how American power and state power functions and the ways that, the ways that it gets deep state-ish and the way that, the ways that it doesn't. Because, you know, the, the thing is with Mike Flynn is he's this army officer and he is a real war on terror, hardcore Islamophobe, right? He is obsessed right. He was sort of seeing these sorts of, you know, pan-Islamist conspiracies, these sorts of, you know, the creeping threats. He was really into the idea of like, you know, what they call like the, the long war, you know, in, in the global right. war on terror era, the idea that this is a civilizational struggle, um, you know, and then he kind of winds up outside um, and he, he gets shown the door for being an abusive weirdo to work for because he was also, you know, part of this very war on terror era cult of like, as long as you are a special forces background guy who's incredibly physical fit and you are theatrically abusive to people, this means that you're a cool badass. It was kind of the attempt to be that kind of celebrity general. And he winds up kind of out in the cold and then just immediately starts lobbying for the Turkish government for money. As you do. 
as you do, as you do. And, and this is one of those things that seems crazy until you realize you could just immediately leave government service as like a, a general and, um, and then just take a bunch of money from a foreign government to argue for their position. He was getting a six figure check to make the case for the Turkish foreign policy in the United States. You know, he, he immediately when, you know, the 2016 uh, coup attempt happened in Turkey, he was like, oh, great. He just assumed, Mike Flynn just assumed that it was like a secularist army officer, that it was the, the old school Turkish deep state sort of cleaning house the way that he, he would proudly want them to do. Right. And uh, it wasn't. And uh, in a a short couple of years, uh, no harm, no foul. He's cashing checks to say that, you know, uh, turns out Armenia is a Russian and Iranian ally. Uh, It turns out that, you know, we hey, he will, you know, at this point uh, plans a covert operation on behalf of a foreign government on foreign soil to abduct a U.S. permanent resident, you know, which Fatula Gulen is a green card holder. And you know that that level of of Mike Flynn as a rubric, where you can go from the the kind of the core of the emergent um, cold, as a as a real cold warrior, you know, like by the yes. time you spend a lot of time backloading his career, right? You spend a lot of time talking about um, you know his consultancies, his QAnon stuff, his you know time as a general. But you know the thing is, is you make the general you make general towards the tail end of a career and it's pretty sparse, like what he was up to at that time, you know, in, in the eighties. But we do right? know some of it, right? And you talk about that in your article. Yeah. And, and, you know, we can, we can assume based off of his positions, the institutions that he went through because there were not many of them. And so, you know, based on that background that he came out of, based on the time, based off of the schools that he rotated through and who would have been his instructors in the kind of small special warfare community at, at that time, you know, when, when he was coming in at the tail end mm. of the Cold War, which was, a remember, a very hot time in the Cold War. You know, when, when yeah. Reagan said, we're going to do rollback, the 1980s was kind of, you know, the, the rebirth of the U.S. Special Forces community as a, a, a group that trains groups deniably, right? So when you're looking at anywhere from Angola to Afghanistan to um, Nicaragua, these are all areas where they were out there. They were training people deniably to overthrow governments, right? And so, you know, he comes out of that perspective where basically regime change is kind of his 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 raison d'etre, or at least a substantial part of his professional background is is building up local proxy forces, is getting building up local deep states. You might even building say building up local deep states. Exactly, kind of ironic. It's and it's 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 strictly ironic. And I think the the Cold War flavor is something that, and and this is something you again that you talk about in your piece. The Cold War flavor really runs through this entire story because it's something that something that you brought up, which I think really doesn't get talked about enough in discussions about QAnon and the deep state and this whole sort of moment is how important anti-communism is in the, I suppose we could call it the Q-ish belief system. So not just QAnon, but sort of QAnon adjacent Trump supporters, if you like. Yeah. And I think there's a a few reasons that doesn't come up much. And it's partly because if you're told two things about someone, one of them is that they're an anti-communist and the other is that they believe that Hillary Clinton is harvesting adrenochrome from children. You're going to focus on the more lurid beliefs. That's what's gotten the most press attention. Yeah. Uh, but also it's because we've sort of got used to the far right accusing their opponents of communism. Yeah. 
And so it starts to look quaint, but I think that's a mistake. Because yeah. it's, it's not a coincidence that this stuff's popular with baby boomers, right? Like, these people still think that they're fighting the Cold War. They believe that the US government was taken over by communists. Yes. I, and, and that's so that's such a powerful and important point when you're talking with QAnon is sort of like it, it's almost like a when prophecy fails type of situation because all these structures for like 40, 50 years were built up to fight communism. And I, I'm not talking about just like organizations like Central Intelligence Agency or, special, you know, uh, U.S. Special Forces Command. I'm talking like social attitudes, you know, yeah. like. Um, you know, a, a kind of baseline knee-jerk reflexive anti-communism and also this, what the John Birch Society did, which is the idea that that urban elites are somehow all behind this idea to kind of water down and dilute your values. I mean, all the stuff that they're saying about critical race theory or trans kids in, mm. in schools or whatever is, is really just repurposed, John, you know, John Birch Society stuff. So it's this point where I say when prophecy fails because it's like, well, you know, communism is a believable ideological rival has gone away, basically. Uh, but the anti-communism hasn't. And so it's this kind of, you know, this well-oiled, actually triumphant machine going around and looking for a target. And the number of organizations in Q world, like, uh, you know, the Unification Church, the Moonies, or um, just a lot of the accusations and tenor and the kind of playbook that they're running, or even what a lot of, you know, uh, increasingly mainstream Republicans are saying about like, you know, we have to defeat the socialist Democrats. We have yeah. to, you know, fight communism, like anti-communist attitudes and ideas are so pervasive. And when you look at January 6th, there was a small but very present contingent of ultra right-wing Vietnamese Americans flying the South Vietnamese flag in the crowd. You can see it in yeah. some of the photos, right? And so there are still, you know, um, there were Cuban flags, you know, from um, anti-Castro Cubans from Miami, which there is a firm, there's a big chunk of, of a big QAnon contingent from, from that kind of political and social milieu. These forces are still present, right? Yeah. And just because something, you know, just because the enemy goes away doesn't mean the army you built the, to fight the enemy didn't. It's like you say, it, it's Cold War coming home. Yeah. You know, it's this, this classic idea of blowback. Yeah. Um, you know, it's that idea that like, hey, this is this, this is all you're just going to do this to yourself eventually. Right. This is all this is all going to be kind of coming back. And I think that 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 and a kind of zombie anti-communism together creates a uniquely potent kind of social and institutional brew in the United States. And one thing I also am increasingly kind of uncomfortable with and fraught with, I got the sense with a lot of my coworkers at the State Department where if one day, just like the FBI director or like Mattis or somebody just got on TV and was like, the president's done, like he's gone, okay? Like we have him in custody, caretaker administration until we have an election, that's it. I don't know if people would have really been too upset about that. You know what I mean? Like there is that, that there was right. this very visceral hope for like, please can't our institutions save us? This lionization of anyone who would stand as an institutional bulwark against right-wing authoritarianism, which bringing it back to Turkey is absolutely the attitude you see among like secular Kemalists historically about Islamist politicians in Turkey, but also to this day. I say Kemalist is shorthand for followers of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk and, and the Turkish military. So there are these two very uncomfortable things that we're kind of left with in the wake of, of January 6th and the kind of QAnon's big shining moment, which I, I, I definitely feel that QAnon is, it, it, 
is not regressing, but it's definitely doesn't have the prominence it once did. And I feel like it's about to metastasize into something even weirder. Yeah, I mean, is that not partly because, you know, particularly since the Mar-a-Lago raid, the the temperatures just got so much hotter that a lot of the stuff that QAnon was doing, you don't really need this bizarre theology anymore. Trump will just say it outright. And so, you know, you don't need to have this adrenochrome harvesting thing to get ready for the fight. They were already sort of at that point, a lot of his supporters. I, I, unfortunately, I think that's the case, but I think we're all picking battle lines. I think that there's obviously a much, much larger space for anti-democratic action on the right, mm. because there's a willingness to use violence there that's documented multiple domestic terrorist attacks. There's explicit eliminationist rhetoric against minorities, fantasizing about race war, a willingness to accept um, domestic terrorists into the fold. If you look at like Kyle Rittenhouse, the guy who blasted right. Black Lives yes. Matter protesters, just getting standing ovations at political conferences. And I, I, I feel pretty comfortable in in predicting that Kyle Rittenhouse has a political future in the United States. Oh, yeah. Yes. But also in the reaction to that, I feel like there is now a willingness to kind of call in the big guns, to use brute state power, you know, in, in a space of a, a lack of confidence about a democratic open pluralistic kind of victory against far-right populism it's like well maybe we just get someone to arrest this guy so what do you do then against you know when, when you have a situation like you have now where you yeah. have the far-right training for war you know the militia movement yeah. growing people sort of talking about war even quite mainstream pundits talking about yeah. civil war on fox news if that gets just a little bit hotter and you start to see more street violence like you were seeing in Portland. Yeah. What do you do other than use the state? I mean, what would your sort of alternative be? I, I think actually there's a, a great article New Lines just put out about how the anti-fascists won in Portland, where it was basically, it was a mass mobilization. And there's there was a, a, a pretty broad coalition from real crazy, hardcore street fighting anarchists to moms and dads out there doing logistical support to just a kind of, you know, democracy in the fullest sense uh, rejecting the terms of this fight, right? I think that all this emphasis, I've talked a lot about the state, I've talked a lot about anti-democratic violence, I've talked a lot about the Cold War, and the thing that really hasn't come up, remember, these are all anti-democratic projects, right? These are projects against mass social movements. I think that's the answer, right? I think that mass-based mobilizing is the answer. I don't think sitting at home and waiting for the FBI or the Capitol Police or some other arm of the state to come save you is is going to cut it. And so, you know, I'm a bit of a one trick pony with this. The answer is always more democracy, a greater mass democratic participation in in our own communities where we are um, to kind of build social forces that can counteract this sort of thing. Joseph Burton, thank you very much. All right. Thanks. It's been great being on. This has been The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. You can find Joseph on Twitter at Pinstripe Bungle and read his article, The Deep State, The Conspiratorial Turn in America, on our website, newlinesmag.com. This week's episode was produced and hosted by me, Joshua Martin. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favourite podcast app. Thank you all for joining us. <laughs>